It is that time of year again. Christmas music is on the radio. Christmas lights are popping up everywhere. Christmas trees are going up. And we as Christians start the season of the church year that we call Advent. The word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus and means the coming of the Savior. It is a holy season of of the Christian church that marks a period of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the nativity of Christ, also known as the season of Christmas. Today is the first Sunday in Advent. And this Sunday is represented by our first candle. And I want to thank the Braille family for lighting our first Advent candle for this season. You guys did wonderful. Thank you so much. The message we should focus on is a message of great hope. What is hope? It is a term that can so easily be thrown around. I hope we have clear weather tomorrow. I hope we have a white Christmas. I hope the Giants will win. Do they play today? (laughs) Well, I hope they win when they play. Yes, we are Giants fans. (laughs) However, this is not the kind of hope that is represented by the candle burning brightly this Sunday. The hope represented by that candle is a much greater and much grander hope. It represents the hope of an entire nation. It represents the hope of the entire world. It represents something that you and I often take for granted. That hope is Jesus Christ. The first weeks of Advent focus focus more on the Lord's second coming in glory more than the first coming at Bethlehem. The gospel is clear enough to state that we must be prepared for an hour we do not expect. The Son of Man will come. With that in mind, I would like to talk to you from the subject, Are You Ready? Are You ready. Our scripture text gives us the key elements for readiness. The first element is wake up. The text says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Paul, of course, has more than physical sleep 
in mind here. But consider for a moment some aspects of physical sleep. When we sleep, we are unaware of what is taking place around us or, or even what we are doing. Perhaps a family member will say, you know, when you sleep, you talk. When you sleep, you snore. I didn't think I snored. But then when I got married, it's like, you know, you snore. And, and you, you know what the bad thing is? He will record me. <laughs> Like, and there, there I am. <laughs> Mouth open, everything. <laughs> but when you're asleep, you're unaware that you're doing that. At other times, we may doze off in front of the TV and miss the, 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 the winning touchdown for the game or, or the critical scene that helped the movie make sense. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm laying there, I'm watching a movie, I'm tired, and then a commercial comes on, you're like, let me just close my eyes for the commercial, and then I'll, I'll wake back up so I can see the rest. Next thing you know, the movie is over. I don't know what happened. <laughs> but when we are asleep, our minds are dreamy and confused. Some of the craziest things happen in our dreams because our more rational part of the brain is asleep and any absurd thought may manifest itself and seem perfectly understandable. You know, when you try to tell about a dream, you're like, well, you know, I was in the church, but then all of a sudden I was, I was at the house. But then, but then I was on the plane. You know, it's like you're just... Is going on. But when we finally do awake, we'll say, well, what was that all about? Now, this text, which tells us to wake up, refers to all of this in a moral and mindful sense. What Paul is really saying here is that we need to wake up and become more aware of what's happening in our lives. We cannot sleep through life like someone dozing on a couch. We need to live our lives and be alert and aware what is happening. We need to be morally awake and responsible for our actions. We cannot and must not engage in dreamy thinking that is not rooted in reality and is fundamentally observed in its premise. Dreamy thinking has to go. We need to be alert, rooted in what is real and what is revealed. We cannot go on calling good what God has called sinful. We need to wake up, take the coffee of God's word, Shake off the cobwebs of drowsiness and start living in the light of holiness rather than the darkness of deceit and sin. Waking up 
also means taking responsibility and exercising authority over one's life. When we sleep, we toss, we turn, and we have little authority over our movements. But when we are awake, we can take authority over our actions and be responsible for them. Wake up! The cobwebs of groggy and sleepy behavior have to yield to the alertness of a new mind. There are many scriptures that make a similar point. Romans 12 and 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First Corinthians 15 and 34, come to your right mind and sin no more. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Ephesians 4 and 17. Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Colossians 3 and 2 says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that that are on earth. The second element, clean up. The text says, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. We should make no provisions for the desires of the flesh. We should avoid the near occasions of sin. We should not easily find ourselves in compromising and tempting situations. To make provisions literally literally means to see ahead or to look towards something in such a way as to facilitate it. The text says to resolve ahead of time, not to provide occasions for the flesh. God says to all of us that in order to be ready, we have to clean up. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, can you not realize that the unholy will not fall heir to the kingdom of God? Do not deceive yourselves. No fornicators, idolaters, or adulterers, no sodomites, thieves, misers, or drunkenness, no slanders or robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. You must know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within. The spirit you have received from God, you are not your own. 
You have been purchased at a price. So glorify God in your body. The third element, sober up. The text said, not in drunkenness. Physically, to be drunk means to have our mind confused due to the influence of alcohol or drugs. Conversely, to have a sober mind is to have a clear mind that is capable of making sound judgment. So much of our battle to be ready to meet God comes down to our mind. It is often said that the mind is the devil's playground. There are many fuzzy-headed, lame-brained, crazy, and just plain wrongful notions today that amount to a lack of sobriety. They emerge from the haze of unsober thinking. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you think. Much of what we think has come from drunken and confused world. Square everything you think with God's word and the teachings of the church. You've got to sober up to request and receive from God a clear and sound mind. Scripture says elsewhere about the need to cultivate a sound and sober mind. 1 Peter 1 and 13 says, Therefore, gird up your mind, be sober, set your hopeful above the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5 and 8. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Solid in your faith. And Titus 2 and 2. Let the older men be sober, serious, and temperate. The fourth element, lighten up. The text says, not in rivalry and jealousy. An awful lot of our sins revolve around our tough, our touchy little eagles. Paul warns elsewhere of other things that flow from this source. Enmity, strife, anger, Selfishness, dissension, but to be ready. Paul warns that this sort of stuff has to go. We need to be more forgiving if we expect to be forgiven. We need to be more generous to those who are less fortunate than us. We should be less stingy and less prone to the kind of anger that comes from being thin-skinned and lacking in humility. 
The biggest sin is pride. And it is enemy number one. It has to go along with its other minions, envy, jealousy, selfishness, hatred, fear, bitterness, a hard and unforgiving heart, and then just being plain old mean. You know, there's some people who's just plain old mean. And you wonder, why are they just so mean? But God is telling us, we, in order for us to be ready, we got to get rid of all of that stuff. The Lord wants to give us the gift to be more lighthearted and less ponderous and serious about ourselves, a heart that is loving, generous to the poor. Consider it. Forgiving, truthful, patient, meek, a heart that is less egocentric and more theocentric, more God-centered, a heart that is open to others. You've got to lighten up. And the fifth and final element, dress up. The text says, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. If we miss this point, everything else is just a moralism, more rules to live by. But the moral life of the New Testament is not achieved, it's received. The moral life of the New Testament is not so much a prescription as it is a description. It is a description of what we are like when Jesus Christ really begins to live his life in us. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John says, but if anyone obey his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know. This is how we experience that we are with, we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Hence, the moral life is not imposed. It is imparted. It is not achieved. It's received. It is not demanded. It's delivered. There is surely a requirement that the moral law describes, but the requirements can only be met in a real or full sense by Jesus Christ living his life in us. If we try and accomplish it by our flesh, any minor success will last only about 20 minutes. Therefore, we must put 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. We must humbly give him our life. The more we surrender, the more he renders us apt and fit to the life he describes. The fact is, if we really hope to wake up, clean up, sober up, and lighten up, it will have to be a work of God's grace. The book of Revelation speaks of the garment, the long white robe that is given to each of the saints to wear. Later, Revelations 19 and 8 describes the long white robe of the bride of the lamb as the righteous deeds of all the saints. It is in this sense that St. Paul, the apostle Paul, tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, righteousness is given to us like a precious wedding garment. In the baptismal ritual, the newly baptized is clothed in white and told that their garments represent their dignity, which they are to bring it unstained to the judgment seat of Christ. In the funeral rites, the cloth placed over the casket recalls the baptismal garment. Yes, the final element is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can really get us ready. There is hope for us. We are not lost. Yes, we have hope. And that hope is in Jesus. In closing, let me share this story with you. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man who, with his devoted young son, shared a passion for art collecting. Together, they traveled around the world, adding only the finest art treasures to their collection. Priceless work by Picasso, Van Gogh. Monet, and many others adorned the walls of the family estate. The widowed father looked on with satisfaction as his only child became an experienced art collector. But the day came when war engulfed the nation, and the young man left to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, his father received a telegram that his beloved son had been killed while carrying a fellow soldier to a medic. On Christmas morning, a knock came at the door of the old man's home. And as he opened the door, he was greeted by a soldier with a large package in his hand. He introduced himself to the man by saying, I was a friend of your son. I was the one he was rescuing when he died. May I come in for a few moments? I have something to show you. I am an artist, said the soldier, and I want to give you this. As the old man unwrapped the package, 
the paper gave way to reveal a portrait of his son. Though the art critics would never consider the work a piece of genius, the painting did feature the young man's face in striking detail and seemed to capture his personality. The following spring, the old man became ill and passed away. The art world was in anticipation. According to the will of the old man, all of the artwork would be auctioned. The day soon arrived and art collectors from around the world gathered to bid for some of the world's most spectacular paintings. The auction began with a painting that was not on any museum's list. It was a painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid. The room was silent. Who will open the bidding with $100? He asked. Minutes passed with not a sound from those who came to buy. From the back of the room, someone callously called out, who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's forget it and go on to the important paintings. There was another voice which echoed in agreement, but the auctioneer replied, no, we have to sell this one first. Now, who will take the son? Finally, a friend of the old man spoke. I knew the boy, so I'd like to have it. I will bid the $100. I have a bid for $100 called the auctioner. Will anyone go higher? After a long silence, the auctioner said, going once, going twice, gone. The gavel fell. Cheers filled the room and someone was heard to say, now we can get on with it. But the auctioneer looked at the audience and announced the auction was over. Stunned disbelief quieted the room. Someone spoke up and asked, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for a picture of some old guy's son. What about all of these paintings? There are millions of dollars worth of art here. We demand that you explain what is going on. The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the father, whoever takes the son gets it all. And that is our message here today. Whoever, it is the will of God the Father. Whoever will take his son, Jesus Christ, will get it all. Amen. That is our message of preparation and hope. Are you ready?